Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, the weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock fans, and musicians take an in-depth look at a different rock album every week. Uh, this is your host, David Lucarelli. This is your co-host, John Carson. This is your co-cohort, co-co-co-host, Mike Gavigan. Yeah, that doesn't really flow out of, off the tongue there, does it? No, it's tongue twister. Yeah. So uh, this week we're going to be taking an in-depth look at the 1978 Gene Simmons solo album. Uh, before we do that, before we dive in, uh, we'd like to play a song or two or three um, that uh, we've all been involved in to kind of let our listeners know um, some of our background and kind of music we like to make. So, um, John, is there a song you'd like to play? Um, you can just uh, keep with um, almost. I I don't know. I uh, yeah. Keep with almost nightfall if you don't mind. Not a I'm, not I'm a problem. I'm gonna see if I can send you some uh, MP3s of other stuff I've done before that might change it up a little bit. Sounds good. All right, cool. <laughs> on dreams is swollen now with loves unseen the fishermen's dancing and drunken little lurches the street walkers spread-legged posed in their perches the strongest of bows is drawn back in its arc the longest of arrows hits right on the mark i'm counting my quarters to see if i stack up i ain't going home and i'm not gonna back up it was almost nightfall It was almost dark Streetlights from here to the skyline Appeared like a grid of electric sparks Skyward I looked and I wished on a star It was only an aeroplane I guess that's a wish that will never come true Hate to squander my wishes that way It was almost It was almost night. 
Takes the words of the wise with a half grain of salt, but lacking a visible target, implodes and wanders all night in a rat's maze of roads. It was almost nightfall. It was almost dark. Streetlights from here to the skyline appeared like a grid of electric sparks. On a star, it was only an aeroplane. I guess that's a wish that will never come true. Hate to squander my wishes that way. It was almost nightfall from below rose the dust. From above fell the twilight. It was almost enough. It was almost enough. It was almost enough It was almost enough I'm going to stay with the, the Dame Fortune theme. I think uh, one of my favorite songs uh, that we recorded was a song called The Calling. And uh, having just watched the uh, Dame Fortune documentary that you did and, and provided to me as a, a Christmas gift, um, I'd love to hear The Calling. So let's, let's go with that one. All right. And that features you on lead guitar and vocals, for that matter. So That it does. And your fantastic lyrics as well. So thank you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Oh 
Um, all right, before we dive into Gene Simmons, um, I wanted to talk real quick. I happened to, I was doing research today. I happened to stumble upon something that I thought was interesting that harkens back to rock and roll over, um, which is we talked about the song Baby Driver and what is the meaning of that song and where they, where they got those words uh, from, right? Um, so there's a, a Facebook post um, where basically there's an interview with Sean Delaney I'm not, I'm sorry, an interview with Stan Petridge, right? Okay. Yeah, Petridge, whatever. Yeah, uh, and he was in a band with Peter Chris called Lips, and this was a song that was kind of left over from that era, and apparently the um, other guy in the band bought, like, a really nice sports car, and it was a two-seater, it was a spider, uh, and the other guys were still taking the bus to get to band practice and stuff. So they sort of resented that. And they had a uh, a book that they would write down lyrical thoughts and ideas and phrases and, and quotes in for the band. And apparently one of the phrases that they wrote in there baby, was Baby Driver. Um, that was kind of them showing how pissed off they were that you know they had to take the bus and, and this guy was able to drive a sports car to rehearsal. Um, then, now, I know that that in and of itself is not a complete explanation for the meaning of baby driver. So somebody else on, on this post thread uh, posted a definition on Urban Dictionary that I think probably solves this case once and for all, which is uh, baby driver, someone who is extremely good at driving fast without even thinking about it is the slang definition, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the whole idea of a driver and then obviously a sexual Adonis who is driving women crazy, you know, it's that, it's that whole, uh, yes, sexual pun thing that Kiss does and is so good at. I think that's probably the best explanation for the intent there. There was a movie called Baby Driver. Remember that? Brent yes. Remember the guy who did Lock... Uh, Lock, stock, and two smoking barrels, or whatever, whatever his name is. He married Madonna. Uh, yeah, uh, but at any rate, yeah, I, that's where I got took it from, and it's. But that um, movie came after the song. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, whether or not this definition came after the movie, or it was it was concurrent with when they wrote the song, you know, that's harder to trace. Yeah. So, anyhow, Gene Simmons, nineteen seventy eight solo album. Um, Unlike Ace Fraley, uh, Gene took sort of the opposite approach. This is an album that features uh, so many guest stars on it and so many celebrities um, that it, it's kind of like the you know network night of a thousand stars and Gene Simmons is the game show host slash P.T. Barnum in a sense. Um, you know, it, it's, it's questionable... To, there's some arguments that he picked the people that he wanted to be on the album uh, because he thought they were the best players for the sound he was trying to get and, the, and for the songs. Um, there's some idea that maybe some of the people he wanted on the album he thought would give him and Kiss a greater validity in the music world because that was certainly a problem they were struggling with. Um, I think it's a little hard to justify, you know, necessarily why they wanted to have Lassie guest star on the album. They mm. apparently <laughs> went out and they recorded Lassie barking 
and he ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, but I think that sort of speaks to the, the P.T. Barnum aspect of Gene, which is, yeah, we have everybody on this album, including Lassie. And, uh, and you know, I think this album was originally going to be called Man of a Thousand Faces. It was because yeah. Gene, Gene wanted to show a bunch of aspects of himself that he had hitherto not been able to show. And um, he did that. I think he confused a lot of Kiss fans. Um, but the intro, at least, very much plays up on the idea of the demon being a horrific figure uh, and leads into the song Radioactive. Um, so right off the bat, there's a cool orchestral kind of thing with these um, natives singing this these lyrics that, you know, appear to be calling evil to take place or some kind of ceremony or, or rite. Um, and then it goes into radioactive. So what are your thoughts and impressions about this one? Good, Mike. Uh, first of all, just the intro alone, I listened to it as a kid and I don't know anyone that, you know, that has heard that intro as a kid didn't feel the same way that I did. It, that intro used to scare the living crap out of me. It sounded like some sort of crazy religious, you know, ritual. Something's going on here that I'm, that I'm not ready to, to deal with, but you know, I'm going to, I'm going to ride it in. Um, but I think one of the, the background vocalists on that intro track is Sean Delaney singing through like a, a vocal processor. Yes. He's growling on it. I've heard. Yeah. Yeah, but to me, it's a great intro because, you know, we'll get to the end of the record, too, but it's a great bookend. You know, you have like this this intro into it's almost like you're being drawn into either like a like a musical or a Broadway play. Like what's happening here? The symphony's getting tuned up and all of a sudden it launches into Radioactive, which, um, of course, they later played on the Dynasty tour for a good stretch. Um, you know, but it's interesting because, you know, obviously Gene's going with the theme with you know Radioactive, like basically saying that, you know, there's a, a love sort of story going on. There's something where you know, somebody's attracted to somebody else. And, but also, too, this is around the time of, um, you know, I think things like, you know, Love Canal and, uh, you know, No Nukes. And, you know, so it, it was a timely, uh, I think, uh, a title for a song as well. But I think this is definitely one of the stronger tracks on the record. Um, and I think he uses a lot of the same players in terms of the rhythm section on the record as well. Um, but I think in terms of just like a song structure, I think it's 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 probably the, one of the strongest songs, and no wonder they played on the Dynasty tour. Um, and I, I thought it was catchy straight away, even just as a little kid, and I, I feel that way to this day. Yeah, it's definitely um, it's like my second favorite song on the album. The weird stuff that always um, got me was like that apparently um, Janice Ian is. Um, singing on that you know the at 17 i always thought that I, I i didn't know that until i did some research on it, which is kind of cool um and again i like i actually like it because the, the lyrics are a little bit clever though she's radioactive he's very selective you know what i mean i thought that was kind of cool um i'm probably wrong is that the actual lyric no that's it yeah okay yeah and um yeah and again i think it, it speaks to the time that it's being um being written in um, what did I, I mean, I actually, even, oh, a couple of the other things that I really liked about it is, it, and you guys talk about this. Um, yeah, actually that's, that's about all I actually wrote about it is that, yeah, it's just, I like, I like the lyric radioactive selective in the intro, 
It's got Tannis e, e in, um, in it. And they're saying sanctus, which just means sanctified or holy in the beginning. That's the word that they keep using, which is used in all the, uh, you know, horror movies or whatever. Like, I think there's, uh, there's even, there's actually kind of a cool rockin' version of that in a movie that came out called If, that had like an African chorus uh. singing uh, something like that, which I sometimes wonder if he didn't borrow from. If you've ever, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's, it's about yeah. a boy in I have, yeah. school in England. Yeah, it's a great movie. But they yeah. use, um, that was what I immediately came up with when I was listening to it. Was it sounded like that sort of opening to that movie in hmm. the movie If. So, okay. Yeah. But again, I like, I mean, I, it's honestly the best, uh, the clever lyrics, you know, she's like, what does radioactive and selective mean? Ra you know, is radioactivity that selective? But it's a good way to describe a woman that you can't get very close to. Right, right. Um, I just want to say about about the guy that orchestrated it, and I, I assume also did Man of a Thousand Faces and When You Wish Upon a Star, uh, Ron Fr Frangipane, or Fr Frangipani, uh, I'm not sure how that's pronounced. Um, mm -hmm. But he has a really interesting background. He was like a, a pop guy with a classical background who was a studio musician who played on the Archie's song Sugar Sugar which was like a million selling hit. Um, he just passed away this year at the age of 75 from coronavirus, uh, unfortunately. Wow. So wow. Um, rest in peace, uh, yes. Ron. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that Gene used him for the intro um, and elsewhere on this album, because supposedly this song was originally written for Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, mm -hmm. and Gene was going to be involved with him, and that didn't end up happening. But if you listen to it in that context, you could see where this would be a song that Gene might write for him. Um, it's interesting that Gene doesn't play any bass on this album. You know, you were talking about who's playing. Yeah. Um, and uh, he plays guitar, electric guitar, acoustic guitar, probably not any leads as far as I can tell. But um and I think you make a good point about how timely it was, Mike, because uh, I vividly remember it was like a year after this that the Three Mile Island accident happened. Um, mm -hmm. And what was really weird about that, just as a personal side, is we had just gone to see the, uh, the China Syndrome that night. And the family uh, came home yeah. from that, and we turned on the news, and in a weird case of life imitating art uh that happened and um yeah two out of the three of us have had thyroid cancer so you know <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> yeah. you we had a little bit from harrisburg tonight yeah gene once again <laughs> had his finger on the pulse um right yeah exactly you know again the whole idea of radioactivity sexuality as being this dangerous deadly power I think is a running theme in Kiss's music that also influenced bands like Motley Crue with looks that kill. Um, mm. And, you know, possibly even the uh, firm song radioactive, which has yeah. a not d totally dissimilar chorus or idea behind it. Great point. It's like yeah. the same thing. But what's funny is this is the first, this is again, haven't listened to this song, this album in 20 years. And that came on, and I was—I knew the song and was singing along. You know what I mean? It's a timeless song as well. Like yeah. It states there wasn't anything from that Paul album that I remembered at all, but I remember this song. So okay, definitely stands out a little bit. All right, and uh, who's who's playing guitar on this one? 
You know, I've been trying to sort through this, you know, all week. And I mean, there are various people listed. Uh, Bob Seger's listed as being on this track. I think he's doing background vocals. Uh, Joe Perry's listed as, as being on this track as well. He might be doing rhythm guitar. Um, you know, I'm not sure who, who does the solo, though. It could be Joe, but it's a harmony solo. Is it the same guitar player playing both, you know, both harmonies? I don't know. Right. You know, and, and all the, the books that I have on, on, on Kiss and, and, and the, the solo albums, I can't really... It's it's just about impossible in some cases to decipher who's doing what. Um, okay, but I have about that later on. So, according to Go Wikipedia, ahead. it is Bob Seger and Aerosmith's Joe Perry on it. Okay, that's what that's what Wikipedia says, and I mean they never lie, right? Right. I uh, <laughs> I do know that there was some instance too, though, where I think they accidentally erased part of somebody's guitar on at least one of these songs, and they had to do some last minute overdubs, uh, you know, to get another guitar player to fix some stuff that they uh, got rid of. Uh, Janice Ian. Yeah. So anyhow, I'm not sure if this is one of those, that song that, that they had that issue with, but. But either way, either way, well, one, one last thing on the solo, it's cool that um, there is obviously a guitar, you know, harmony solo there. And when Kiss played this on, this, on the Dynasty tour, the Paul and Ace, you know, took that approach as well to presenting the song in a live uh, performance so oh, nice. it's it's a cool harmony yeah i'm glad that they you know did that that way on that tour absolutely no I, I definitely vividly remember thinking to myself before we went to the civic arena show like are they going to play stuff from the solo albums and i was so yeah. excited when they actually did so yeah and well, again let's just you know emphasize that as well i mean think about how crazy that was you had four albums that came out on the same day and who knows what they were going to play on that dynasty tour and they did but when they played some of those songs it almost sounded like you didn't know what song they were playing it was like okay what is this you know is this an account you had to be really up on your kiss you know music history to know what the heck was going on during that show because straight away i think radioactive was the, was the the second song in the set okay quite surprising you know but, but i'm glad they did me too, me too. Second song, Burning Up With Fever. Uh, really good groove. I kind of dig it. It's got a little bit of a, I want to say BTO feel, but I don't even know if that's really the word, but it's kind of like a funky guitar riff. Uh, it sounds very... Um, this whole album sounds very 70s to me. Maybe because it's mm -hmm. all the studio musicians at the time that are all playing in like a certain way like that sounds like a very 70s song to me um i like the growling voice um and i, I guess oh one of the isn't it, like somebody from the doobie brothers is on this song isn't it maybe that's why it sounds so 70s and funky at the same time um yeah skunk, also, uh, sk yeah good yeah skunk is on, on the record on, on this okay, track for sure right, yeah yeah oh you, yeah that's that's the guy you're talking about okay and then the um i like the it has the weird little fake countdown at the beginning the intro yes. that's sort of something that he plays with and he song like it starts i guess that's some famous classical guitarist who does that actual little you know open chord thing at the beginning right and then um it goes into almost like breaking the strings and then back into something and then uh they play this has this has donna summers on it again it, it's a 70s album it's like a it's like a rockin disco tune you know what i mean i, I it totally is set in that time period the, you know, the, the groove, it's very, it's heavy, but it's also got a little bit of, you know, it's got a groove to it. It's a little bit funky. It's got all the background singers on it, you know, including Donna Summers. Um, you know, it's a good song. I, you know, it's not the greatest song, but it's definitely a good song. And it's a well put together song. And what you guys were saying before about, 
you know, lots of different people on the song, it may be um, maybe a little too good. You know what I mean? Because everybody's doing exactly what they, they're supposed to do. You know, he's got the best of the best on here. No one's particularly struggling, but I don't think anybody's really stretch, stretching themselves um, to do anything on it. So that's my opinion. But. Okay. Uh, to me, I, I've always loved the segue between radioactive and, and burning up a fever. It, it starts off, you know, like this sort of very dignified, you know, this is very classical guitar piece. And then there's like the, the dissonance in the second or third phrase where you think, whoa, is this a real, you know, it's almost like Gene saying he's got a sense of humor. You know, this is some sort of dignified approach to my record. And then all of a sudden it gets kind of dissonant and weird. And then he says, lovely. You know, in between, you know, the, the yeah. part where it sounds awful, uh, but then it reconciles, and then you get the, uh, you know, the, them going to the track of, of "Burn Up a Fever." And again, I agree with you, John. It's a very, you know, of the period uh, piece. You know, we, we have like, you know, basically, you know, Donna Summer, who was a Casablanca artist as well. Uh, I think she was hitting her stride at that point as well. You know, and again, Gene's just sort of bringing all these, you know, named players and named singers on on the song. But it's same time, I could see this song being on. Uh, you know, previous records, either, you know, Rock and Roll Over or Love Gun. And I, just, I think in a lot of cases, too, at least in some cases, there are some songs that were demoed for previous albums, probably, or, you know, not included on, you know, or not considered, you know, to be ready for, for those albums. And I think this is one of those as well. But um, at the same time, too, at the end, it, it starts to go off, you know, the deep end with, you know, the vocal gymnastics. And it, it's a, it's a buildup. It, it's, it's a really well-produced track. Uh, but it's also, it, it's got a great hook. So, Bravo to Gene for writing, you know, uh, a, another catchy track for this record. Yeah, uh, my impression of the intro is that it's almost like Gene is playing with the whole idea about our traditional view of what is attractive and what is beautiful, right? It starts off with this hmm. classical, beautiful guitar stuff. And then, like you said, there's this purposefully dissonant thing that would normally be considered ugly and gene deems it lovely which is the opposite of your expectations and it's very much reflective of the whole persona of the demon right the demon is not classically good looking or attractive uh in in the sense of clark gable or brad pitt or somebody and yet he seems to have this this power uh, that comes out of his sexuality that defies that conventional wisdom. And I, I hear that intro sort of reflecting it in a kind of Phantom of the Opera sort of way. Um, Mike, last week when we were talking about Paul Stanley, you mentioned the fact that Paul put in some interesting vocal flourishes on his solo album where he kind of jetes up and down an octave very quickly within the space of a word. Um, I think Gene throws in a couple really yeah. interesting vocal flourishes in this song uh, on the lines, you know, you know, there is no one else. Uh, I'll give you a chance. Um, there's some vocal gymnastics going on there where I think Gene is showing off the fact that his voice is in a really good place at this point, And he's got a lot, yeah. a lot of control over what he's doing vocally. He's not just barking this out and, you know, in fact, we'll see later on in this album that he's actually managing to hit some really high notes in his full voice mm -hmm. that he had never attempted to do on any other Kiss albums. So, um, yeah. So I think he shows some progress there. 
Um, and so it's got some, yeah, and it also I think Radioactive and this both has that sort of like funky '70s uh, pop and slapping bass that I wanted to actually talk about as well, which is not how he plays. You know what I mean? At least until later. Um, so again, it's I think it was it's kind of cool. I mean, it, it stood out there. But again, you hear a little bit of that on Paul's record too, sort of a, an updated funk bass playing. Um, which isn't so isn't apparent on their kiss album really much at all. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, good. I'll just say good point, John, on you know the you know, sort of the period. Um, well, actually, I should say like funk, you know, bass playing because in a way, if you listen to this track, you know, anytime I listen to an album by Sly and the Family Stone, I feel as if I'm listening to a party that's happening and they just happen to be recording it in a studio. Mm. Uh, this to me yeah. could be like a Sly and the Family Stone track where you got the slap bass happening. You got the female mm-hmm. vocals, you know, you know, right. the lead vocals. It's definitely like every it's single because like it's like a funk approach to a Kiss song, which is yeah. somehow yeah, that exactly. wouldn't work, yes. but somehow it does. Exactly, and then every chorus is a Kiss chorus, except <laughs> and, I mean, and not just this song, the whole album. Yeah, and I'm um every chorus is like this giant. It's a Kiss chorus, but then it's piled on with female backing vocals and you know that kind of stuff, and it definitely, you know, it's. Uh, it's just Kiss songs overblown that take into the final stage. You know what I mean? At least a lot of them. Yeah, I, I could see that. I mean, I think the, the choirs and stuff, in, in some ways he's going back to his 50s roots. You know, before yeah. the, there was the Beatles, Gene was a big fan of, of Jerry Lee Lewis and Chubby Checker and Little Richard and Fats Domino and Chuck Berry. And all of those guys became singers basically out of singing with the church choir, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think in, in some ways he's, he's using those modern flourishes of, of funk and, and some kind of disco mm-hmm. influence, but also showing more roots than he had hitherto for. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I'll buy that. Sure. And, and interesting too, on, on the, the background vocals, on the background vocals thing, uh, one of the female uh, background vocals is Katie Seagal, who was later on uh, Married with Children. Yes. But at the time, she was in a group. I love the name of this group. It was A Group with No Name. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious band name. But nonetheless, um, they, I guess they apparently had a couple of hits. I believe they're also in Casablanca as well um, around the time. So, just, again, interesting stories behind who's, who's on these tracks. You know, I actually got to talk to her a little bit about that because I worked with her. She was on some TV show or movie. Um, she came into the studio, and of course, I had to ask her about that. And she uh, had really positive memories about it. You know, she had nothing but good things to say about Gene and uh, and the making of the album. So that was nice. Absolutely, that's great to hear that. Um, did well, you... I mean, I'll th- never mind. I'll talk about it later. But it's uh, interesting this this album versus the Gene Simmons that we've seen for the last ten to fifteen years. But we'll go on with that in a minute. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say. Time. So we established Jeff Skunk Baxter definitely plays on this track. Yes, I think yes, he's doing the yes. solo. Uh, okay. If you think about it, he, he was also in uh, in addition to Doobie Brothers, he was. Uh, way before that was in a band called Ultimate Spinach, which is like a psychedelic rock band. And then he was later um, a studio musician with Steely Dan. And I think uh, my old school, uh, the Steely Dan track, you can kind of hear the same sort of tone where he's always he's always got this interesting, like distant sort of approach to solos and it's really sort of biting tone. I think 
this is one case for sure that I can say that I think it's it's going to play in the, the guitar solo on this track. Okay. So just to go off on a little bit of a tangent here, I've been researching Jeff Skunk Baxter, and he's a really interesting guy. Um, and and I, um, you, you know those Dos Equis commercials where they had like the most interesting guy in the world or man in the world? I think that he definitely yeah. falls into that into that category because in addition to being in Steely Dan, the Doobie Brothers, all that kind of stuff, um, somewhere along the way, he became one of the guys that the LAPD would go to when they had recordings that were hard to decipher, like they had put, you know, bugged somebody's phone and there was noise and interference and stuff, and he would eq and compress the recordings for them to try to make out what people were saying and make you know like you see that on tv he was one of the guys wow. that that did that okay yeah. oh, that's cool so then the other thing that he did is he got involved <laughs> he he taught himself because he had a neighbor that was involved in this and he watched like youtube videos about this and he was into computers um he educated himself about missile defense systems and he somehow became a consultant with the Defense Department um, about missile defense systems because he would think outside the box in terms of like doing war games with the Pentagon and and trying to think like terrorists and, and ways that they would do things that the Pentagon couldn't anticipate, like, say, flying planes into buildings and stuff. Um, <laughs> and... I'm not done. <laughs> okay. He also is listed as the senior thinker and raconteur at the Florida Institute for Human and Machine Cognition. Now, what is the Florida Institute of Human and Machine Cognition, you might ask? Well, here's a little self-described definition. This is what they say they are. Okay. Uh, Not-for-profit not research institute where scientists and engineers investigate a broad range of topics related to building technological systems aimed at amplifying and extending human cognitive, physical, and perceptual capacities. In other words, they're making superheroes, okay? <laughs> Which, <laughs> if, you, if you go back to the fact that, you know, Gene and he are friends and Jeff Skunk Baxter is playing on this album mm -hmm. and Gene Simmons mm -hmm. is kind of a living superhero in a lot of ways yeah. who has taken a lot of his persona from comic books who thanks Stan Lee and Jack Kirby on the back of this album. Uh, mm -hmm. Jeff Skunk Baxter in some ways has gone full circle and is now uh, taking the whole kiss idea of self-belief and and potential and applying it with scientists and engineers to make things like superheroes a reality so i just thought i'd throw that in there oh. <laughs> yeah i heard him speak well, actually once in some sort of ted talk or something like that uh it was on npr and he um he has a very self-deprecating sense of humor because he mm -hmm. was like, why? They were like, why the Doobie Brothers? He's like, it was about weed. What? We couldn't come up with anything else. And then, then they were like, uh, you know. And he was like, well, what's the point? He's like, I don't know. I was like eighteen. I thought I was going to save the world with music. You know. I mean, he like totally makes fun of himself. Um, you know. 
And he, he sounded like a really interesting guy, you know, being interviewed. It, it, interesting point too, Dave, uh, to, to, to to bolster what you're saying about him being sort of being utilized for his, let's say, hearing, you know, or ability to, to filter things with EQ. Um, he's one of the players. If you see pictures of him in the seventies, in you know the live bombast of like a Doobie Brothers concert, which you know they also use pyro as well in certain songs, much like Kiss did. He's the guy that's sitting there on like a stool with headphones on and playing. So he's like, you know, he's always been sort of known for being, you know, a, a keenly uh, tuned ear in a band and, and taking things to a different level when it comes to a live performance. So well, I'm not surprised. I mean, in a way, I'm surprised. But I'm not surprised that you know the, the LAPD brought him in to uh, utilize the skills that, that he obviously has. The Robert Fripp of Southern Rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's interesting. Remember that episode of Good, Good Times where Rerun accidentally brings the recorder to the. TV Brothers show. Oh, yeah. Remember that episode? Oh, yeah. What happened? I don't know. I've seen maybe like four episodes of Good Times in my life, and one of them was the Doobie Brothers were playing, and Rerun, and JJ were going to take, we're going to record the show, and so they brought a tape recorder, and then Rerun got arrested, but it turned out the guys in the Doobie Brothers were cool or something, (laughs) and we're all right with it and let them go. That's, I'm, yeah, I'm the, probably making up the ending there, but I don't remember anything more than that. No, it's a great episode because the Doobie Brothers basically say, you know, they show that they have compassion. They say, okay, it's fine. You know, we understand. Just right. And, and you get a couple Give of us the tapes. <laughs> in good times. Yeah. So it's really good. Yeah. It was like that time of the young ones when, like, Motorhead played. Right, right. right. Now, yes. Were the Doobie Brothers in the episode? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. They, they even played a few songs. Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. All right, moving on. <laughs> that was a suck. I'll never get out of that rabbit hole. All right. <laughs> it's hard to jete from good times to see you tonight. <laughs> All right, okay. All right, see you tonight is definitely like one of the, it's the Beatles song. I know that he's influenced by the Beatles. Uh, I even know the guys from Beatlemania were backup singers on it. Um, it's a fine song. I, I don't mind it again. Like I said, most of this album stands as a very interesting testament to the character of Gene Simmons, not necessarily to great songs. It's more interesting to listen to um, knowing who Gene Simmons is 40 years since that he's been working in the industry and go back and take a look at this and sort of see what he's become, what he came from, that kind of stuff. So it's it's definitely, like I said, it's a decent song, but it doesn't like blow me away. And it sounds like the Beatles, which is fine, because it wasn't Wicked Lester basically like pretty Beatles sounding, at least in the beginning, or am I wrong on that? They definitely had a, a Beatles influence. I mean, Gene has, has never hidden the fact that he pretty much worships the Beatles. And in fact, he wanted to have the actual Beatles sing on this, this album. Um, and supposedly they were not necessarily opposed to that, but it didn't work out because of scheduling. So he, he got the uh, next best thing, two of the guys from Beatlemania. Right. He got the Which again shows... And again, shows how resourceful he was. I mean, he, obviously, you know, he knew that if he couldn't get the Beatles, then who do you bring in? You bring in the Beatlemania guys, you know, um, and, and appropriately as well for this track. I think it's a really catchy song to the point where um, they performed it on MTV Unplugged um, in 90, was it 96, 95, 96. Um, and it's interesting, too, because uh, there's a string section on this track as well. And if you look at Bruce's, uh, Bruce Kulik's performance on the MTV Unplugged, He's doing this sort of counter melody. It's sort 
of imitating the string section that's on this in this track on the LP. So, you know, obviously it meant enough, you know, to Gene to be able to say, okay, if we're going to do this thing unplugged, then let's go with this track. And I think they did a great job of it. Um, and this is also one of my favorite songs from this record. It's just a, you know, it's just a catchy, you know, strum along, you know, song that I wouldn't necessarily want to write, but listening to it, I really enjoy listening to it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, like it. I, I think it's a song that's a lot stronger musically than it is lyrically. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think Gene has always had a great ear for melody. And um, I think lyrically, it sounds like a first draft. <laughs> like, like yeah. when you, when you look at the lyrics, I know it's around. I don't have any doubts about that fact. I'll see you get it tonight. And if I can't, I'll cry and cry. You won't see me without it. And I'll see you tonight. Sort of begs the question, what is this it that he is talking yes. about that he never mentions? Um, and there's not really any context to interpret that. It sounds like, like I said, the placeholders for what the l- real lyrics were that he was going to flesh out. And then he just never uh-huh. got to it. Yeah, I'll buy that. Okay. Well, aside from the fact that it's uh, you get so taken aback by the fact that it sounds like a Beatles song, it definitely falls into sort of like filler territory. Um, but it doesn't because it's so bizarre. You're like, what is this? This is Gene Simmons singing like the Beatles. So it definitely stands out for that for that reason. I mean, at the same time, too, he could be just you know hearkening back to like psychedelic rock. You know, there are bands like the Electric Prunes that write songs like "I Had Too Much to Dream Last Night." Well, you know, what does that mean? You know, it, you know, is it is there really anything you know that he's really saying that it is? Who knows? It could just be just. Yeah, you know. but that's an interesting phrase. I had too much to dream tonight. I mean, I'm not arguing with yeah. you, but I I see you know that that phrase and this sort of he didn't even make it odd. You know what I mean? I wish if he had made the phrase odd. Good something. point. Good yeah. point. No, I know what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, he's showing a, a certain degree of vulnerability. If I don't see you, I I will cry and cry. Um, I think you know. There's the idea. At first, you think he's saying, "I'm going to see you," but then it sounds like he's just going to observe her at some outside event. I'll see you tonight outside, right? Um, but it's I, I I just will say that I think that musically it's a lot stronger than the lyrics. I think he's capable of better. I agree. I agree. Yep. All right. Tunnel of Love. Okay, I started with this song being the most demon of the songs that are on here, the most demon-like or Kiss Gene Simmons type song on here. It's got a sinister bass line, um, and it's even got that killer line, you jump off a roof like when I say, or whatever, which is... Um, and again, the, the thing that really sticks out are these choruses. Like, these choruses are these giant anthematic, you know, lots of background vocals, female singers. You know, they just explode in your face. And I mean, and that's probably a, a nice formula for writing a hit, you know, or something that will stay with you. Um but again, it sounds like a good demon kiss song, and then it just the chorus turns into, you know, seventies, um, you know, radio music, which again isn't necessarily bad, but it takes it away from it being a kiss song. So that's my opinion on it. But it's it's I wrote next to it super seventies. I mean, that's what it is—a super seventies song. 
And I think it's interesting too. Um, I think this is another one of those songs where this had, had, had been uh, demoed before for you know, previous Kiss records. I think it's been written that um, you know he took parts of Man of a Thousand Faces and you know, got Love for Sale. And you know when you compare that to like Paul Stanley, I think Paul is more of like an immediate has more of an immediate approach to songwriting. Like it's going to be what it is, and this is where it goes, and he's not going to question that. Whereas Gene will say, you know, I've got an idea that you know from years ago that worked with this. So he's always in sort of like an evolving approach to, to putting songs together, which is a great way to be because that way, you know, if you have an idea that didn't work before, maybe that'll work now. So, you know, why not recycle that or bring it into, into play? Um, and on the, uh, the subject of guitar players on this track, I had played a Kiss Expo in Detroit in 95 or 96, and Richie Rano was uh, the promoter of that Kiss Expo. And, and the night before the gig and the night before the, the Expo, we're all you know, having dinner and having drinks and talking about, you know, experiences. And Richie had a ton of stories about working on this record and also, you know, working with Jack Douglas. And I had mentioned that, oh, hey, by the way, you know, who's really playing on this track? Because his list is, you know, Joe Perry playing certain things, you know, whether it be the guitar solo. And Richie, I guess, and I think it's later confirmed in books that came out, uh, but I guess apparently Joe had recorded a solo and it didn't necessarily work out or it wasn't what they wanted. And then they called Richie in. And if, if you don't know, uh, Richie played in a band uh, named Stars, uh, who were also uh, managed by Bill Quantum Management, um, who had also opened to Kiss on, on several uh, tours in, in the 70s as well. Um, but if you listen to this you know, from a technical standpoint, it's got this real sort of stratty, sort of single coil sound with like a fuzz tone. It's got a real binding sound to it. And if you listen to that and listen to like the, the first two Stars records, you can definitely tell that I I would say 100% this is you know Richie playing the solo on this track. So again, you know, like you said, John, catchy, uh, you know, big chorus you know, in the Kiss style with a lot of background vocals. Um, you know, as much as you know, this album is is a hard one to sort of get behind. It's 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 one of the stronger tracks I think uh, in terms of presentation. I think you hit on a key thing, Mike, in terms of Gene's overall approach to songwriting, which is that. Yes, he tends to overwrite. He writes a million songs um, in all different genres. And then he takes pieces, you know, sometimes reuses pieces, reuses lyrics to cobble together new songs. Um, and very often, I think, doesn't have the best perspective about what, what, of what he has, all the pieces are good or worthwhile pursuing. Um, and so you end up with these these kind of Frankenstonian type song assembly, um, which is good in a sense, because like you said, it's, you know, he takes pieces of songs from years ago and then melds them with new material that he's working on. But um, if there's an overall criticism of this album, I think it is that there are about a half dozen mid-tempo cock rock songs on this album, none of which are bad songs by any means. They're all really well done, but they're fairly interchangeable. You could take the pre-chorus or the verse from one song and stick it in any of these other songs, lyrically, musically, and it would probably slot in there pretty well. Yeah, I agree. I agree, absolutely. Which yeah, also that's goes... definitely something that comes across in this album, is that the, the lyrics are definitely not that strong. There's moments... Like I said, you know, the jump off a building if I told you to, that are kind of jump off the roof if I say, yeah. Yeah, yeah or whatever. Um, 
well, no, not whatever, but you know what I'm saying. Like that's that's the, to me. I mean, besides being kind of creepy, it's definitely like sort of an inspired lyric. Um, but then a lot of it is very cliched. Well, the title track too is kind of like the female reverse of Love Gun, right? The idea of a uh. thinly veiled sexual metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> I want to visit your tunnel of love. Um, very much keeping in the in the kiss tradition. But also to counter uh, or to bolster John's point about the, the lyric, you, know, you jump off the roof if I say, I remember reading an interview with Gene where he was aware, keenly aware of the fact that, you know, he was on stage in front of all these people. You know, if at any moment he wanted to say kill, then he could influence a crowd to do something, you know, disruptive in a way. So I think he's just sort of aware of the fact that, you know, people are willing to do anything you know, for certain celebrities, um, if, if they're in that, that situation. So at, in a way, it's a, it's, it's a nice, you know, sort of point of view into maybe where he was, you know, mentally at the time, you know, obviously he's a guy that didn't really party or drink and he's aware of the power that he has or could have yeah. over an audience or a female companion. So, and to your point, that reminds me of a story that he told, I, I can't remember if it was with Cher or Diana Ross, one of those women of that ilk that he was dating mm -hmm where uh, he had just started seeing her and they were on tour and somehow there was some groupie that had gone up to his room and, and you know, he basically just said, give me, give me a second, you know, and he said something to the groupie like, your master commands you to wait here. And he just left her in the hotel room <laughs> and went out with, you know, the, the girl, uh, Diana Ross or, or Cher or whatever. And, and Diana Ross or Cher was like, well, oh, my God, you know what? You're just going to leave her in your hotel, hotel room for hours? And, and he's like, yeah, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. So <laughs> <laughs> No, that's the gene I know. Oh, good gravy. Yeah. Multitask, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> true confessions i mean it's got a country western feel almost um and then it's got i mean i gotta stop reading about these things because they it's got helen ready on it which is i am woman hear me roar singing background on it which seems almost I mean, I don't know, like, did she lose a bet or something that she's going to play with, like, the king of cock rock at this point to, like, sing background vocals or something? And then it's got the Citrus College singers on it. Yes. Okay, and again, it's this, these these songs are, uh, I, I'm sounding like a broken record, man. I mean, there's really, um, the, these choruses in these songs just stand out so much and make them, because there's so many voices on them. You know what I mean? That it it really just, um, you know, kind of blows you away that you can't not like it. You know what I mean? It's like there's so much going on there. But um, there's some line, I'm not, I'm not your social security. I'm not your, what is it? I, I'm not your star are. opportunity. I'm not your social security. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which at first I was like, that's kind of cool. And then I listened to it again. I was like, you know what? That doesn't really make any sense. So, I mean, it does make sense. I mean, he's saying he's not like his... Uh, you know, I just couldn't I couldn't figure out what the lyrics meant in the song at all. Well, I know? think he's saying he's saying, listen, don't look at me because I'm a super rich rock star as your, uh, you know, wallet to exploit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand that. But then right. what does that have to do with True Confessions? Like True Confessions is I mean, obviously, that's the name of a magazine from the 
40s and 50s, which was right. like a, you know, a, a tabloid. But then at the same time, um, you know, in true con- and a comic book, you know what I mean? A romance comic from the 50s as well. So it's like, I don't know where we're going with this. You know, I, I, I mean, again, I it, the song feels unfinished to me. I almost think it's filler, but then part of me is like, dude, that's Helen Reddy in there. You know, what the hell's going on? Right, and Helen Reddy apparently had a somewhat of a reputation of being a bit of a diva. Um, and it's interesting, yeah. there's a line in the song, uh, you know, they tell me you're not very nice. <laughs> that he addresses to her, which, um, you know, it's funny that that line is in there knowing her, her reputation. I think the true confession in this context is simply that uh, he's perfectly willing to have a one night stand, but uh, he's laying his cards on the table. That will be the extent of the relationship. Okay. All right. I'll buy that. And also, too, maybe on, on the opposite end of that, maybe he's saying that, okay, if it's going to be a one-night stand, great, but if you want to have a deeper relationship with me, then there's got to be a higher standard. I need true confessions in order for me to take you seriously. Yeah, Otherwise, yeah, that's sort of you know, how I I'm, interpret I'm not going to yeah. bother. Sure, sure. I'll buy that, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's funny, too, but a lot of these songs that have gone to you had said that, you know, like there's this really catchy chorus. I agree, absolutely. It's almost like... The bass line in this song has got like the descending rock and roll all night, uh, you know, bass line mm-hmm. yeah, uh, with this catchy walk. chorus, you know, or almost like a strutter, you know, walk to it as well, you know. And at the same time, you know, I some of these songs stay with you because the choruses are so catchy. I mean, a, a case in point, I remember uh, attending a Def Leppard concert in 1987, 88. And I think it was right around the time when uh, Hysteria had just broke. But the point to all this is. A lot of the songs weren't really known. They weren't radio yet. But I remember being at the show and being so loud and just being so swept up with it. You know, I remember raising my hand and saying, Pour some sugar. I didn't know what I was singing. It was basically singing Pour Some Sugar on Me. But I just was swept up in the moment. It really didn't matter what I was singing. The melody was so strong that I would just, right. I, had to, I had to be part of that. And again, when you can write a song that is, is, is catchy, you know, with a chorus like this, or several of the tracks on this record, you know, that's really you know, the key to songwriting. I think... At the same time, too, I used to have uh, discussions with my dad about music, and he had always mentioned the point that, you know, what's more important, you know, the melody or the lyric? And he always said, well, you, you can't hum the lyric. You can hum the melody. You know, so there's something to the fact that, if, you know, if there's a catchy part to the song, that's the true art behind songwriting. And if you can right. bolster that with, you know, a good, you know, lyric, then, then you're going someplace. So just to, again, to, to reinforce the fact that, yes, these, these courses are very catchy. Um, you know, despite whatever, you know, misgivings we might have about some of the, uh, you know, the other lyrics and, and, and verses and stuff like that. As much as Gene used a million and one guest stars on this album, uh, the other side of that coin is that he wrote all of these songs by himself with one exception, which we're about to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So in that sense, it is, regardless of how many other people are playing on it, a very true reflection of, you know, who he was at this point. Yeah, no, and that's something that I find fascinating, that, which would have been really my final thought for the album, but I'll, I'll give it to you now. It's like, okay, so Gene Simmons, I always kind of, were, you know, thought was like this great, amazing dude, lived the life I always wanted to live, okay? So then he, it goes to the 90s, and he um, tells off... Um, the Fresh Air Lady, uh, Terry Gross, 
Okay, he goes on the show and, and is complete asshole on the show with Terry Gross. And I can't tell if this is him trying to play up to his fan base or whatever the deal is, but it literally was like a Gene... To me, it was like a Gene Simmons impersonator which was in that place. Because mm. there's nobody that intelligent as Gene Simmons that's going to completely blow up an interview on fucking NPR. You know what I mean? It just, it just didn't make any sense to me at all. So I look back at this album and I'm like, okay, well, Gene Simmons is... I mean, literally, at this point, I'm like, I mean, I, I don't like Gene Simmons as a person um, anymore. You know what I mean? Like, I would not want to meet him. Now, we, we met him briefly one time, and he was actually a very nice guy to David and I. Um, but based on these, you know, these things that you're seeing on these TV shows, and I know the TV show, I only saw a little bit of it. It was soft scripted, you know what I mean? And they're setting him up for mm-hmm. situations and that kind of stuff. But after the whole Terry Gross thing and, a couple of other interviews, I was like, this guy's kind of a jerk. He's not kind of a jerk. This guy is a jerk. And then I'm looking at this album, and I'm like, this guy really isn't a jerk. You know, this is a very multifaceted dude who has a lot mm-hmm. of taste. You know what I mean? And we'll get to it at the end, but a lot of his choices here show someone who is playing, in many cases, a lot of different characters. So why you choose to bring out your worst character on Fresh Air, I don't what? understand. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't... I still, like, this is, that is one of those things. Like, I've listened to that interview, and I'm like, you just blew up your whole life to, like, a million Gen Xers right there. You know what I mean? People that have grown up listening to you immediately heard this interview and read all this, you know, and, and it's like, you know, it's like, you know. And then I was like, well, can you separate the man from the artwork? Well, yes, you can. It's still, I still respect the stuff that this has done. But, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's almost like the Ted Nugent effect. You know, like, yeah. White Buffalo is one of the greatest songs ever written in the history of the world. Ted Nugent's an a-hole. You know what I mean? So this album, to me, shows a side of him, someone that you know is very concerned about um, how he appears, the different ways that he appears. But then what I finally wound up seeing, you know what I mean, was something not that. I don't know. So I, I was kind of going to save that for my final thoughts. It's definitely something that has been burning since I started listening to this album. Well, not to go off on too much of a tangent, I'm, I'm familiar with that interview. Um, I think that Gene definitely has that side to him where he can be an asshole. Um, but by that same token, I, I think it was a case of he went on there sort of spewing the usual shtick that he spews <laughs> in a million other interviews, and it very quickly became a game of chicken, right? Where... Mm. Terry Gross wasn't going to play along with his shtick and he wasn't going to cut out his shtick. So it was, you know, oh, how's the tour going? Well, it's great. You know, our audience has been meeting us with open arms and open legs, you know, and, and Terry <laughs> says, oh, Gene, that's, that's terrible. How could you say that? You know, that's disgusting. And he says, well, that's not what you said to me when the microphone was off, Terry, you know, and all, all this kind of stuff, which is a mask that he wears that he doesn't really expect anybody to take seriously, but she did. And he, I think, was like, all right, I'm not going to blink first. I mean, it's not like Terry Gross is some shrinking violet, right? I mean, she's a very accomplished, intelligent woman who can hold her own, and yet people still talk about this interview as if it happened last week, and it was... A long time ago, 
I actually played it for a, a friend of mine. Uh, you guys know Gil Rosenthal, and his impression was, "I think oh, yeah. I think this is how Jewish people flirt with each other." You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I see that, but I just don't yeah. understand why he would do that. Whatever. Okay, I'll I'll shut up. But it's like I just don't. You know, it was that. It was a lot of other moments that have made me always think that like he's a bit of a he's an a hole. You know what I mean? He definitely can be an asshole. Yes. Um, yeah, and so and and you don't play ch- whatever. I mean, it's he's a grown ass man. You don't play chicken when you're going to be on NPR. Like, do a five minute bit of research about where you're going to be. You know what I mean? Like, is he walking into? Is this? You know, I honestly would believe that Gene Simmons would actually listen to Fresh Air. You know what I mean? Like, I he seems like that kind of intellectual. You know, that would catch a couple of things on Fresh Air. So that's uh, never mind. I don't know, but it's just it's the inter- because now I'm starting to like him again because of this album. I'm like, okay, well, that was probably some sort of you know thing that he was messing around with on on Fresh Air, and here this is really the kind of the the many characters that he plays, and probably even some of the sadness that he experiences playing these characters. You know? Yeah, and I, I I think that that he wears these different masks. And mm-hmm. I, I think that um, his ability to do that is the reason why Kiss is as big as they are, but it is also mm-hmm. the reason why they are not any bigger than they are, why they're mm-hmm. not a stadium band. I think at a mm-hmm. certain point, his personality becomes self-limiting because he likes to control other people, because he likes to say things intentionally to put other people off so that he can be in control. That is, right. that is likes, a part of his personality. Off kilter, but... Ugh. But, you know, at yeah. the same time, too, you know, whether he's, you know, an asshole by definition, you know, he did release an album, solo album, called Asshole. asshole yes. Which is fine. Um, but, you know, but at the same time, too, and these guys have always been sort of, you know, swimming upstream in terms of, you know, approaching, you know, how they're going to sell this band. I mean, they are the kings of interviews. You know, in terms of you know, either answering the question or not, not answering the question or coming up with a clever response. And then fast forward to like the early 80s when they were fighting all the, um, you know, his kiss, you know, knights and Satan service. Da, 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 da. They always had, you know, uh, a great response to those sort of questions. But then also too, to John's point, there was also an interview in the 90s uh, where I think Gene and Paul were interviewed by um, Howard Stern. And Gene and Howard were obviously not getting along at that point. You know, it was it was an uncomfortable interview to watch. Yeah. But somehow, you know, then, then again, when you think about it this way, in a world where you know musicians of that era were either you know clouded by you know, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, you've got Gene and Paul, but you know mostly Gene being you know the clear-headed guy. You know, thank goodness for a guy like that in rock and roll to be able to 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 either stand for his, stand his own ground or you know, up the ante when it comes to somebody who's going to try to, you know, you know, sort of beat him down in an interview. Like he doesn't really, he's relentless in that way. And I think that's something that can be respected in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, they did, they didn't start out being the Kings of interviews. If you look at that, 
that Michael Douglas interview, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Where he's that's, trying, well, you know, famous. he says, yeah, I'm evil incarnate. And they say, and, and Phyllis Diller says, ah, wouldn't it be funny if you're just a nice Jewish kid underneath that? And he goes, oh, wouldn't you like to know or whatever? And she says, ah, the nose tells a lot, right? I mean, that, that basically, the, yeah. the hook tells a lot, right? Uh, yeah. Um, uh-huh. And yeah, they, they initially tried that whole thing of like, well, let's have him do an interview in character a la like Alice Cooper or Marilyn Manson or something somebody and that went down in flames you know mm-hmm. so yeah so it's interesting well, was I, it ace drunk in that or was that just gene that was much later you're thinking no, about that was tom, the tom schneider, schneider yeah i'm sorry yeah. yeah um so so that didn't work um i think they were actually afraid to show a lot of the sides of gene for a long time uh mm-hmm. because when they if he wasn't trying to put on a shtick he came across like an educated school teacher Right. And that yeah, was very yeah. unrock and roll. So they they yeah. ca- calculatedly and consciously limited, especially during this period, exactly how much of him was going to be exposed and how it was going to be exposed. Um, I remember seeing a, a, an issue of 16 magazine. And it said on it, this is like 1977, maybe. Uh, where it said, look inside for a special message from Gene Simmons to the youth of America, right? And you turn to the page, and he's handwritten, schools out, party nights, explanation point, Gene Simmons, right? (laughs) That was it. That was the special message from Gene Simmons to the youth of America that they were willing to put out. Now, we know that Gene Simmons didn't party in any meaningful sense of the word, but I think that he, there was a part of him that found all of that nonsense constricting. And this was the the time and the place for him to show different aspects of who he was. Um, you know, just on a personal experience, I had an acquaintance that was a big Kiss fan that was dying of cancer. Um, Gene called him up and talked to him on the phone before he died. Um, you know... My wife worked for Gene for about a year, uh, went over to his place, met him, um, you know, was treated fine by him. I mean, does he have that rock star aspect of himself? Absolutely. Right. When he said to to her, uh, you know, he said, hey, let's go up to the room upstairs and you guys can all take some kiss T-shirts. He has a a room devoted to nothing but kiss T-shirts. And uh and nobody else is coming and and my wife was walking up behind him and gene turns back and says where is everybody and and sherry says i'm coming and he goes well you just want to look at my ass you know (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think he's used to being in situations where he can get away with that where he feels like he's the smartest guy in the room and he's surrounded by people that humor him or indulge him but he is a smart guy and very frequently, he may be the smartest guy in the room. He probably is. I mean, that's yeah. a, I mean, and that's definitely why a lot of rock stars are a holes is because they have worked harder than any of us have, and then we're sitting there asking them, saw so, you know, silly little questions about you know, um, whatever. And I think that they are sick of it, you know, and in many cases may want to just say like. What do you, you know, thank, you know, thanks to all the fans, we have to, they have to constantly thank the fans. And I think part of them are sometimes like, we have worked our asses off to get here. Stop treating us like we're children. You know what I mean? Like this is so, 
sometimes I get that vibe from interviews. And I do think that NPR has a notoriously condescending tone to mm. bands like Kiss, to people like Gene Simmons, right? So I, I expect that he went into that interview thinking that he was going into a hostile situation right off the bat. Yeah, I mean, it's not just that. It's other stuff that I, when he was the Howard Stern interview you're talking about, there were a lot of things going on in the 90s with Gene Simmons. There was some sort of weird altercation between him and Al Franken or something at some point. Um, so it's like, I'm just saying, and I don't, I, you know, whatever. He is uh, kind of an a-hole, but like I said, when he met us, he told us to sit down and he told us all about, you know, what Kiss was doing. You know, so Yeah, we'll have to tell I that story on this, on this podcast. Um, yeah. But real quick, here's a story that I think epitomizes Gene Simmons, what he does. OK, and you can say this is him being an asshole to a certain extent. But say we were at Comic-Con one year. My wife mm -hmm. was waiting in line. This was years before she worked for him. Um, and she turns to the guy who's in front of him, who's getting his autograph. And he says, looks at points at my wife. Uh and says, oh, have you met my sister? Right? And instantly creates this weird, awkward situation where the guy's like, oh, no, I didn't know you had a sister. Oh, hi. You know, like, and, and my wife was like, what? And, you know, it's just, that's the kind of thing he gets off on. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For a guy that, you know, obviously is intelligent, you know, has a vision of where he wants to be and how he wants to be viewed. It, I think the overall arching you know, theme with this record is it's cool because as weird as you want to, as a lot of people would want to call this record is, it's really sort of an autobiography of where he was and, and is at the time with, with the yeah. songwriting and what he became. So in a way, the second side of this record, which I, you know, I always you know, think of records as, you know, an A and a B side on vinyl. I think the second side is even stronger and more personal in a way. Uh, yeah. Whereas the first half was sort of, you know, this is what you sort of expect of Gene. But now we're going to get into the brass tacks of, you know, me sort of revealing myself you know, in a recording or in, in a song. Fair mm -hmm. point. Fair point. So the first song that kicks off the second side is Living in Sin. Totally cheeseball. I love it. It's, it's absolutely. It's almost like it's almost like he took a Kiss song and decided to make it even more ridiculous and made it actually cooler. You know what I mean? I think it's almost like it feels almost like a parody of a Gene Simmons song done by Gene Simmons because it's uh, you know that that you know even it's like when I, I guess that share on the phone on the famous phone call on the bridge yes, or whatever. Yes, he's I, like hello baby, yeah. like he's the big bopper or something. Yeah, you know what I mean. And he's doing, and again, it's got a killer background, you know, vocals to it again, very seventies, but it's you know it's totally ridiculous and it's almost way it's so over the top that it's it's almost like good. It's like a Douglas Sirk uh, melodrama, but now it's a Gene Simmons cock rock song. You know, it's almost the, you know, because at first I was like living in Sin at the Holiday Inn. That's ridiculous. And then the more I listened to it, I was like, uh, you know, I think he's making fun of himself. You know what I mean? I think this is sort of 
him almost parodying himself. So that's that was my take on it. And I think too, Dave had mentioned that there was only one track that was a co-write, and this was the one. And apparently, from what I've read, uh, I think it was Howard Marks who had mentioned you know the lyric, you know, "I'm living in sin at the Holiday Inn," and or whether he, he you know used that whole phrase. But I think Gene took inspiration from that, and you know, and sort of you know developed a song from that. But when you think about it, it's amazing that nobody took that lyric before Gene did. Because obviously there are a lot of touring rock bands that were living in sin at the Holiday Inn, you know, and nobody was clever enough to say, you know what, hey, you know, here I am, this is what I'm doing, right? Yeah, you know, but uh, at the same time, it's you know, he's you know, meet you in a ladies' room, uh, you know, calling Doctor Love. I mean, it, these are all catchy choruses, you know. They are, and it's it's funny. Yeah, it's like a, a provocative, decadent Beatles, you know, <laughs> in you know, in a hard rock vein. It, it's. Yeah, you, you can't fault them for, for what they did and what they accomplished. And to me, this is fun because this is back in the old days when your know, records would have like an A side and a B side. And you, you have to think, well, what's going to be the strong track for the B side? It starts off in such a weird way with like the drum beat and what's going on here. And then you got that riff, which I, I would assume is Gene playing electric rhythm guitar because it just sounds the way he plays guitar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then for him to bring Sharon to the track and then, you know, doing the, you know, the, the breakdown with um, that whole thing and the breakdown to, to me, to me, it's great. I, I don't know. It, it, it's a well-produced record, and again, we haven't mentioned it. I think uh, Sean uh, Delaney was uh, one of the co-producers on this record. And Dave, you and I were speaking earlier about Sean, uh, his album uh, Highway. Uh, there's such a high production value on that record, and you can see that in this record as well. You know, so even though again the record, you know, a lot of fans called it as weird or they couldn't relate to it or they didn't know what to think of it, it's there was always an approach to making this. You know, it was it was never intended to be a, a weird or a silly album. There was always something higher that I think Gene was reading for. But at the same time, too, I think Paul was quoted as saying, Gene's album has a lot of sizzle, but not a lot of steak. You know, so, mm-hmm. you know, if you delve into it, is it really, if you get into the minutiae of what's going on with this record, if you break it apart, it doesn't really stand, I don't know. But, you know, if you allow yourself to just enjoy the record as it is, then, then it works, and you've got a catchy chorus in a lot of cases, and you know it sells as you know an album that has you know strong songs in terms of what um, the average listener would be able to you know to, to absorb and, and appreciate. Yeah, I, I think anytime Gene writes a song about his relationship to the fans, it's interesting. Um, when he talks about "I know you uh, send me sexy pictures for my wall" and all this. Um, but there's there's that sinister line too, right? You know, but sometimes my love can go too far. It's almost like there's mm-hmm. almost like an implied threat there. Of, you know, you don't uh, you yeah. don't want to be too vulnerable around me because I could be dangerous for you. That that whole thing is kind of an interesting aspect of it. Um, but yeah, is it is it cheese ball? Is it is it funny and over the top? And I think you said. Uh, yeah, a decadent Beatles. That's that's a, a, a great way to put it. Um, all of the above. Yes. <laughs> and I, I think, too, with uh, there, there, are, there are also themes, too, with this record. Um, think about it, with the, the clever use of uh, string sections and orchestras and, and choruses. You know, think back to Destroyer when they were uh, working on Great Expectations. You know, it, it's interesting to know that, you know, they brought that in on that record. And then you have a lot. A lot of this, more so on this solo than anybody else's solo record at the time, a lot of orchestras and you know string sections and, and you know uh, choruses and stuff. 
But then, in a way, this is sort of a stepping stone to a light, an album that we'll discuss later, which is The Elder. There's yeah. a lot of things that I see that they incorporated later in The Elder. So, you know, it all comes from somewhere. And obviously, maybe it was that Gene's influence, you know, perhaps. Another good point. Perhaps. For sure. For sure. Um, so that brings us to Always Near You slash Nowhere to Hide. Right, and I've heard that that's actually two different songs jammed together or whatever. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's presented as more or less one song on, on the album. Um, right. it, I think it's unique in a sense because the way that it, it happens, it sort of starts off as one song and kind of evolves into this other thing, um, which you don't really see happening right. on any other kiss song right. that i yeah, can think yeah, of yeah that was cl- i like that transition because you bring in the big string section and the orchestrated part and he's really um isn't that where he's like really reaching with his voice oh you yeah. Know what i mean like yeah yeah it's like during that yeah. part and i was like whoa hey good work there gene um it, uh, it again has sounds like beatles but i would argue more solos beatles almost wings like or you know solo john lennon you know what i mean not particularly the beatles themselves um, the, the only thing, I mean, I like the orchestrated part. I actually did. I'm not lying. Um, you know, because I, I, it's not too cheesy. I kind of dig it. It's got, a, it gives it a nice power to the song. Um, and, and again, I like how Gene's really reaching for those notes in it. Um, and it's, it's a nice, soft, cool song. I mean, it's, again, if, if we're talking that side two is the let's explore all the masks that he wears, We've got living in sin, which is him as the demon, and then we've got always near you. You know, that's it's like a pretty, almost a pretty little love song, um, you know. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you can't hide, you know, which is sort of like, you know, he doesn't really present the song as such, but it's a bit of a threat, you know what I mean? So it's sort of interesting that it's, you know, going from one type, always near you, you can't hide, um, you know, kind of deal. But the way that the song is presented is it's a love song, but. The actual lyric itself does come out as a, a bit threatening. You know what I mean? It's a little bit, you know, spooky. Like, you can't get away from me. I'll always be around you. Yeah, I think there's a kind of vampiric mm-hmm. aspect to the song. Um, mm-hmm. I think that Gene's playing around, you know, the very first line of the song, I've just begun since you've gone. Sounds mm-hmm. like it's the end of a relationship. He's moving on you know, he's mm. done. And then it, it sort of like fakes you out, plays against your expectations to understand I'm the only one. Right. So mm-hmm. right away, mm-hmm. there's kind of an interesting nod and a wink there lyrically. Um, and if you cross yourself at night, you know, you immediately evoking the whole Catholic thing that you, you picture the girl in the bed with the cross and the vampiric uh, overtones of, mm. all, of all that. Um, I'll come and see you. Don't run and hide. I'm always near you, near you. Um, and if you turn out the light, don't think you'll hide behind the night. Um, yeah, I think there's definitely, he's playing up the whole vampiric persona here. Um, I don't know that it completely works lyrically when he goes into the, the end of it, when he, you know, he says, don't try and hide from me and everyone okay you know (laughs) there's not been you know in in some sense i guess that's you know you could say that's similar to 
to love in chains, but but you know now we've we've mm. changed the dynamic here. Um, one thing I wanted to say about the song is that I think when I listen to a song like Nowhere to Run, Nowhere to Hide, from Paul's that Paul did uh, that ended up on Killers, yeah. I I feel like Paul listened to this song and said. I can do what Gene was trying to do in this song better. And that's mm. what, that's where that song comes from. And that's a pretty standard rock and roll cliche. Nowhere to run to, nowhere to hide. or no, Yeah. Nowhere, nowhere to hide, you know, which is, I think, literally like a... I don't know what that comes from. I always think of military operations. You know what I mean? Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. You know, mm. that's, we're coming to get you. Well, Dave, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it's the lyric at the end in the uh, Nowhere to Hide part, which, again, I, I think I've read that one of Gene's point of references for this song was uh, the Beatles song, A Day in the Life, where you have like a, a song that starts out a certain way and then it goes into a segue into you know, a different song, but similar vein. But I think one of the lines in this song is also, you'll be the only one, correct? Yeah, uh, let's see. Yeah, you'll be the only one, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so in other words, it, it starts out in a weird way, like the relationship ends, but then, you know, is it trying to reconcile? It's just a weird twist that is sort of unresolved in a way. That I was, you know, even as a kid, I remember, you know, listening to these lyrics. Because, again, too, if you're doing, like, the, the vampire approach to uh, the lyric, it's against this you know, acoustic-sensitive, you know, ballad type of song, which is a great, you know, uh, dynamic as well. Uh, but I was always fascinated with this song as a kid, you know, th those reasons as well as, you know, I always found these chords tremendously interesting. Like as, as a kid trying to play guitar, like if I could play this piece on, you know, a silver tone, you know, 1960s guitar, then I've accomplished something because there's a lot of, you know, finger picking and, you know, it's really intricate in a way. And I, I love the fact that you've got the, the lyrics the way they are and, you know, it's a, against a sort of ballad approach, but, you know, what really is he saying? It's kind of hard to follow and where, where does it resolve and how does it resolve? Yeah, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll buy that. It's an interesting experiment. I don't know that the experiment is a complete success. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Again, yeah. a nice piece looking at Gene at this time in his life. Again, not the greatest song, but if you're, you know, this is one for the fans, you know, is the best way to put it, I guess. You know, something that gives us a nice view of Gene Simmons. And again, too, the, you know, if you look at it, there are a lot of songs on the uh, Wicked Lester records that were the Wicked Lester, you know, demos uh, that were never released that, you know, you could tell that this might be something that might have come from that era, but then he used yeah. this approach again for songs on The Elder. Right. Speaking of that, uh, this next song, Man of a Thousand Faces, which originally the album title was going to be Man of a Thousand Faces, uh, before they you know, unified all the Kiss albums and decided they were all just going to go with their names. Um, probably my favorite song on the album. Um, I assume that it was probably orchestrated by the same guy that did the intro to Radioactive. It is, yeah. Okay. Um, Wikipedia. Interesting, interesting orchestration. Really well done. Um, I can hear a lot of John Williams influence mm -hmm. on it. You know, Star Wars and and star uh, Superman. And, you know, it, it's sort of impossible to overstate the influence of John Williams on movie music in the seventies and eighties. Um, you know, yeah. when you have the theme for star Wars, Superman, Raiders, of the lost Ark, ET jaws, jaws. Yeah. you know, um, 
And yeah, I know what <laughs> you think. You think he'd be like, give someone else a chance. <laughs> yeah, but I guess he was. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's a lot of freaking hit movies that you're making a lot of money on. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, he was he was amazing. Um, and I this this song to me, um, the title "Man of a Thousand Faces" was that was the uh, nickname for Lon Chaney, who was a hero uh, to to Gene, who was the star of all kinds of different horror films and was known for being able to completely change his appearance uh, from film to film, and hence the Man of a Thousand Faces. But also, I you know, obviously he's writing about himself. Um, and I, I think this is the best song and the most interesting song on the album by far. Um, not only because of, of the way that it's orchestrated, but also, uh, because of what it says about him and the vulnerability that it says when he says, I walk the streets by day, I never know what to say. It doesn't matter anyway. You know, you sense that frustration of this five-year-old who fresh off the boat came to New York City not being able to speak the language beyond hello and basically had to teach himself like how to speak English, how to read English and got so good at it that he was able to teach other people's children English. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, yeah. and the, the whole I walk the streets by day is very kind of, you know, the secret identity of the superhero or the monster, that whole idea that there is a part of me inside that I can't show anybody else that you can't see. And you may think that I'm just an ordinary guy or I have nothing to recommend me. But if you saw the real me, the real truth, boy, would you be surprised because I have a thousand other faces. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so it, it's brilliant, I think. Um, the lines, for years I've lived inside my dreams, somehow I've made them real, it seems, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a, there's a thing there where he's even acknowledging the whole idea of success, being a rock star, is just another mm -hmm. mask. It's not real. It's, you know, um, there's a great quote by Oscar Wilde where he says, give a man a mask and he'll tell you the truth. And that is definitely an aspect here. Um, I, I think it gets really interesting towards the end of the song. I can put on any face. You won't know me, but it's no disgrace. I'm not sure if this, this next line is accurate or not, because obviously no lyric sheet and some of the lines that are floating around the internet are definitely inaccurate. Um, mm -hmm. This one listed as the king of night. He understands. Okay. Mm -hmm. Is that what you guys hear on that? That's yeah. That's what I've always heard. Yeah. yeah. Okay. At this I've point. Yeah. Too, yeah. Yeah. Or at least heard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a, a strange line. I was thinking about it today and I thought of it in a, in a different way than I've ever thought before. Because when I heard that line before, I always thought he was saying he's the king of night, you know, and I never really mm -hmm. understood, but I think in some, some ways it's a tip of the hat to Paul, right? Because it was mm -hmm. Paul that's saying, I'm the king of the nighttime world. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And so he's, he's saying, the king of night, that's a mask that Paul wears. Paul understands that there's a side to me that's a superhero and a side to me that's a businessman and a side to me that's an asshole and a side to me that 
makes him want to be in a band with me. <laughs> well, All right, I yeah. Know, yeah, good point. I never would have thought of it that way, but... Um... So I can see that. I never tied it to Paul at all, but yeah, you uh, you basically beat me to the lyric I was going to talk about. Yeah, now. What lyric were you going to talk about? The same thing you were. The, okay. The, yeah. Um. Yeah. I. Wow. I got nothing to add to that. It's my favorite song on the album, but you basically hit everything I want. I would have wanted to say. So yeah, it's it's. Um, I love the orchestration. I love the way that it talks about him as someone. It almost seems a little sad in the way that he says it. You know what I mean? Um, it's, it also still sounds like the Beatles a little bit. It's got that dun-dun-dun kind of chorus to it, which always you know gets you right in the gut no matter who's playing it. So it definitely is awesome. And I like the fact, too, that you know the vocal comes around, the lyric comes around in the end. He's like, who's the man of a thousand faces? I'm the man. I'm the man of a thousand faces, you know, it brings it around. But there's also a universal aspect to it. We are all, each of us, men of a thousand faces and women yeah. of a thousand mm -hmm. faces. And Gene's talked about that too. You're not the same person, you know, you are in school talking to your teacher that you are talking to your wife, talking to your son, talking to your friends. Yeah. But then, Dave, you also mentioned you know, the point about, you know, give the man a mask, you know, when, just in terms of playing in bands. I mean, I've played in some of the same venues in, you know, in just, you know, in regular, you know, street, you know, stage clothes, whatever it is. And gotten all kinds of gruff about volume and turn that down. I, you know, the, the, the bartenders, are, but they can't hear people ordering drinks. When you play Kiss in a Kiss tribute band in a, in a venue like that. There is no question about volume or anything going on or things blowing up back in the old days. So believe me, I, there, there must, it's just a tiny sliver of, of that sort of power. I, I've seen it. You know, I've played the same venue where the, the other band is, no, you're too loud. But all of a sudden, because Kiss is playing, quote unquote, it's okay. All bets are off. Play as loud as you want. Blow up things. You know, so there, there's a bit of truth to that for sure. Interesting. Interesting point. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. They, they do talk about how on stage, they felt themselves becoming something that, you know, their personas, uh, you know, they felt more powerful than just when they were just rehearsing without the makeup, without the costumes. Yeah, and it gives you, there's a whole bunch, of, because you basically have this mask on. So even if you do have a minor flub musically, you can steer people down and just own that mistake if you want. You know, or you can, you can execute that note as well as it should be done. And it, you just, there's just that barrier, that, that comfort zone. It, it's amazing. And, you know, again, bravo to Kiss for, you know, presenting those performances in, in a live way. That's just, uh, you know, no wonder they were as successful as they were and um, as confident as they were, at least as they appeared on stage. So great job, guys. Yeah. You know, one of my theories about why they became so successful is that even when they weren't that big and they were only like small, tiny black and white pictures in a black and white magazine of one off little, you know, casual mention it's mm -hmm. really hard to take a truly bad picture of them because of yeah. the way the makeup is. And because it's black, it translates well into black and white. So yeah. I think that, you know, in another band, you have a photo and you say, oh, it's not a good picture because somebody's looking off this way or he's blinked. It doesn't matter if they're looking mm -hmm. at the camera. It doesn't matter if they blinked. As long as you capture the makeup, it's interesting enough that people are going to say, what the hell is that? Yeah. Yeah. Very good point. For sure. No, I just chalked up their success and the fact that they just kept working at it and working at it and working at it. But, um, that, you know what I mean? That's my big, that's my belief in their success story is that they just kept going at it. I mean, they, 
they used to infamously say, all the money we make goes gets reinvested back into the, the show itself. You know what I mean? And they would rehearse all the time and play all the time and, you know, that kind of stuff. And we're uninterested in the trappings. At least Gene and Paul were uh, rock stardom and more interested in, you know, being successful, making it work. And, and that's, I mean, a lot of times that's my argument. I always think back to, like, why did bands succeed and my band didn't, you know, and stuff like that. And I look to a lot of bands and I'm like, well... Okay, so we go with like originality and creativity. I'm I'm creative. I'm original. You know, I listen to a lot of stuff, but it really is that moment. And this is just a theory. Don't you know? Don't jump down my throat on this. But it's it's that ability to say you know, screw you to the rest of the world, and don't get a day job. You know what I mean? Become a squat mm. in a basement with you know four other guys and start you know making it you know practicing all the time and you know that kind of stuff. I. I sometimes feel like that's what, anytime I read about bands that started out, how they became sort of successful, it was this constant grind. You know what I mean? It wasn't, you know, it was sponging up your parents or, you know, you know, just like not being distracted by anything else. And that's what I always thought Kiss was. It was a band that was never distracted by anything else, never let anybody tell them they were ridiculous or, you know what I mean, and just kept at it. Well, to be fair, Gene and Paul both had day jobs in the early days, but they were living at home with their parents. That's true. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and again, they were probably practicing four or five times a week and playing out as much as possible. And I don't know. At the same time, you can have, you know, bands that have like a similar approach. I mean, you know, look at bands like Stars. Look at bands like uh, Angel. Yeah. You know, all these bands had some ties to either Casablanca or Coin Management. And in the case of Angel, they had a highly, you know, produced you know stage presentation and you know their albums were produced you know all, all those albums were produced by you know well-known producers like you know uh, jack douglas da, 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 you name it but you can have all these bands on the same label and same representation but they either fizzled out or they didn't have the support or whatever you can come up with any excuse you know, but mm -hmm. those bands that i mentioned they might have had three or four albums tops and then they, they fizzled out you know where's kiss <laughs> they did that up till alive and then they had a whole other second phase and then they had another phase after that and this yeah, is the phase yeah. we're talking about now so you know is it because is, is it the drive or is it because you don't you have the support more so than other bands didn't have you know, it's tough to say but you know yeah it's the drive it, it's there the, comes and it's the makeup and it's the ability to write decent songs i mean yeah let's i'm, I'm not saying it's all the drive you know, you gotta have yeah. some sort of talent in there. Yeah, I yeah. think it. I mean, there's definitely talent involved. Also, the performance aspect of it. I, I think you can't undersell with those guys. I mean, I think they've forgotten more about how to perform a concert than most bands will ever learn. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, um, okay. I'd buy that. You know, so yeah, I, I think it's a combination of talent and luck and timing. But I also think Gene is the guy that is up at three o'clock in the morning firing. You know, shovelfuls of coal into the Kiss furnace during the coldest winters when that furnace yeah. is almost about ready to go out. Uh -huh. um, you know, thinking like, what, what, what's next? What can we do? How do we keep this going? You know, can we get the advances on the T-shirt to do one more leg of this tour? Um, things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, Mister Make Believe, which I think is. An interesting song. I think it's interesting it comes after Man of a Thousand Faces because it is really the other side of the coin uh, to being a Man of a Thousand Faces. Um, the, the, the detrimental aspect of wearing a mask is that 
a mask can only express one aspect of yourself. It's never completely true. And you have to subvert other parts of yourself to wear that mask. So much as Gene might want to be everything that this girl wants him to be, you know, to be the perfect lover, to be the perfect boyfriend, he can't live inside the mask that he's trying to put on to be what she wants from him. He can't ever become the demon 24-7 who is perfect and all-powerful and knows everything. It's just a mask. At the end of the day, there's a sad aspect to it because he's never being completely truthful with this girl or with himself. Right. Yeah, I'll buy that. I'll buy that. I don't really have anything to add to that because I really, again, it sounds, it's it's definitely got a Beatles feel to it. It feels a little bit like filler to me, but yeah, I like the idea. I thought it was interesting that it came in after Man of a Thousand Faces. This whole side, again, is him exploring all the different aspects that he lives, is the way that I took it. And again, too, to, to bolster Jay's point about, or I think it was with the John's point about how you can have, there might be too many mid-tempo songs that are similar and some things are certainly interchangeable. You know, have I heard this song before in this record? Maybe. Is this a slightly different twist with it? You know, who knows? Um, but at the same time, too, you know, we've all mentioned, like, you know, sometimes you're better off not meeting your heroes because let's say if you are a female and you want to meet Gene Simmons the Demon, that's exciting, I guess, in its own right. But then, you know, what would be less interesting to just, you know, to meet Gene and he's got no makeup on, he's just a guy that likes to eat cake. And, and that's what he's about. And he likes to, you know, have you know, a role in the hay, if you will. I mean, you know, th there's an expectation there. Like, these guys are larger than life. They're big guys. They're superheroes. And when you get that close to it, what do you see? You know, and, and what do you take away from that? So I, I think, you know, maybe, Dave, you're making a similar point where, you know, is there insecurity there with, you know, Gene as, you know, who he is in terms of on stage or, you know, a man on the street? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I that. It's decent, and I like that it follows Men of a Thousand Faces, and it talks about what it's like to be Gene Simmons, which again supports my theory that this album is a nice cultural artifact about who Gene is and who the 1970s were, or what the 70s were, and you know, that kind of stuff. So, got See in Your Dreams, which is the re record. Yes. This time with the guy from Cheap Trick. Right. And added uh, song structure, there's, there's uh, a little bit more of a verse to it at the end, which, debatable how much that adds to the song. Yeah, I don't think it, I was thinking the exact same thing. I went back and listened to the, the one from Rock and Roll Over, and I, I like it because it feels a little, it's got more of a, um, almost a wall of sound, the way that it's produced. I don't think that's the proper term for it, but it's definitely a little louder and down and dirtier. And this version a little funkier but, um, yeah <laughs> but i don't it didn't really add anything to the song you know what i mean yeah it feels a little more lived in i guess i mean there's some interesting panning going on with the vocals and it i mean i think it's more successful but um i don't know if it's it's night and day i mean what are your thoughts mike um i you know i you know, to the point where being a kid, I think I had purchased this record and, and my cousin who had gotten me into Kiss, you know, um, introduced me to, to Alive 2. Um, I, it blew by me. I didn't even notice that this was a re-record. She said, don't you realize that this record you know, has a song that was on Rock and Roll Over? And I thought, oh, 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 
okay, you know, to me, it, it, it was almost irrelevant that it was on the record at all because I've already heard this song. Why do we hear it again? You know, um, but again, just, you know, it becomes a, a point too, where I think, um, you know, you're having guest stars on the record, but also to Eugene's approach to this, this song, I think he had been quoted as saying he wanted more of like a humble pie feel to this, to this track. Well, how, how true could that be? Because you have two of the biggest humble pie fans in the world being, you know, uh, Paul and Ace, you know, that was basically like a humble pie version of, you know, or, you know, Kiss was basically a later version of Humble Pie anyway, with you know the dual guitar thing. You know what? What did you not accomplish with Gene, with uh, Ace and Paul that you wanted to you know accomplish on the, on this record? Other than the fact that you want to add another verse and add a, a second uh, you know vocalist, if you will, which in this case was Michael DeBar, who was in uh, Silverhead and Detective, you know, who had opened to Kiss in the seventies as well. I you know I don't know. And you bring in Rick Nielsen, which interesting point about Rick's uh, solo, the first lick that he plays is basically the melody of uh, When You Wish Upon a Star on guitar. Ah, ah I didn't check that out. Ah, cool. Good catch. I have to go back and listen to that. Yeah, which I always thought was a real great melodic part, but I thought, wait a minute, that's, you know, again, you know, is it a, you know, uh, it's something that is leading you to the next track. But either way, I, I just don't, I just don't get the point. Like, is it that different? It's slightly different. Is it better? It's debatable. I don't know. I leave it to the listener, but, um, you know, I, to me, I, as a kid, it flew by me. I, I didn't even notice that it was something that was on another Kiss record. So it shows you how much I, I paid attention to this song as a kid. <laughs> All right. Well, that just leaves the final song on the album, a completely traditionally done version of the Disney song we all know from Pinocchio, When You Wish Upon a Star, which it's funny to think how controversial it was while they were recording this album, that Gene kind of kept it a secret from other people because it was, quote-unquote, so different than what the people expected from him. I mean, and then you look at what we know about him now, and it seems so completely him in every single way. Yeah. It's so completely reflective of his personality. Um, but uh, thoughts? No, I thought at first I thought it was ridiculous, and then the more I listened to it, I was like, "Wow, this is sort of a very melancholy take on this." And his voice even cracks in it while he's singing, and it really feels, you know, it's actually kind of moving, you know. Um, so, so it's funny you mentioned that he he apparently uh, started crying when he was singing it, and mm-hmm. he heard his voice crack. He wanted to do it again. And Sean Delaney, the producer, said, no, it's perfect. We're not changing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nice. It's definitely, actually, it's a standout track, you know, um, to me because it, it is so heartfelt, you know. And again, going back to my argument that this is not a great album, but a very nice cultural artifact and a nice self-portrait of Gene Simmons, it definitely mm-hmm. is the coda to a perfect self-portrait of Gene Simmons, you know. Definitely. So, I agree, John. Yeah. Lyrically, I think what resonates with Gene about this is the whole idea that you can come from anywhere and come to America, especially. And if you work hard and you believe in yourself, you can make your dreams come true. Um, You know, when you wish upon a star. And especially, I mean, he was a living example of that, who had come from nothing and had achieved in a relatively short period of time, all of his dreams, um, 
or, you know, if nothing had ever happened for him positive after the, this point in time, he still would have been the living embodiment of the American dream. Um, I do think that, that part of it has to do with the fact that um, America as a country was a lot more socially mobile back then. You know, it was a lot easier for people from the lower class to get into the middle class and to, from the middle class to become wealthy. Um, you know, we were the number one country in the world for being able to do that in the 1970s. Um, and so I think it's a reflection of that time and that period. I also think if you look at the lyrics of the song at the end, um, they, the background singers are singing it. So it's hard to make out, but it says, fate is kind. She brings to those who love the sweet fulfillment of their secret longing. Like a boat out of the blue, fate steps in and sees you through. When you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. And the idea that fate or destiny plays a role in your life um, is a concept that I think is united with KISS and KISS lyrics um, throughout their career. And this is, you know, in Rock and Roll Hell, in The Elder, um, mm -hmm. you know, what is your destiny? What is your fate? Um, and this is really the first time that he's overtly talked about that concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it definitely, there's nothing to change about it. I mean, I've heard that, that it's, isn't it like the first movie he saw coming to the United States or something? And like immediately was taken aback by it when he was like five or six or whatever. That could be. Or, yeah. But yeah, I believe so, John. Yeah. yeah, it definitely speaks to his immigrant roots and, you know, America's place. Again, like, yeah, I got nothing really to add to it, but go ahead. I mean, like what I said before. And I think just overall, um, you know, we, let's say you know, we, this is the, the third uh, solo album we've analyzed so far. You compare this to, and these are just general thoughts, compare this record to the Ace record and the Paul record where it sounds like, you know, whatever you, some version of like a band on the Ace record and the Paul record. It sounds like a bunch of guys that you know, are playing together as a band. But with this record, you have, you know, basically the rhythm section throughout is, is consistent, but it just, it never really sounds like a band. It sounds like studio tracks and, you know, extra background singers and, you know, guest musicians doing background vocals or lead guitars, you know, but at the same time too, you know, this record requires more from the listener point of view to to it in terms of how to appreciate it. Like you could you could listen to an Ace record, you know, the Ace solo record or the Paul solo record and appreciate it for what it is straight away. There's no guessing or no question what it is. Whereas this, you've got to sort of what's going on here, you know. And for me as an eight year old kid, it took a lot for me to get into this record, but you know, eventually did. But it just, you know, at, at the same time as well. You know, I've mentioned this is almost like a Broadway musical or, you know, uh, you know, high school, you know, play or whatever. You've got the bookends of the intro and you've got the bookend of, you know, when you wish upon a star. And it is very sort of, you know, autobiographical as well. But it's it's almost like I remember, you know, when I first saw the album, uh, you know, Kiss uh, and Music from the Elder, I remember seeing that record and, and records were thinking, well, what is that? Is that like a soundtrack to a movie that I wasn't aware of? To me, this is like a it's almost like a soundtrack to, to, to Gene's life. And you have to kind of you know, appreciate it in that way. And once you do, then you can embrace it as a record. And it's a, it's a different approach from the rest of the solo records, especially compared to Aces and Paul's. 
Um, but if you look at it through that lens, you know, you get a sort of a great, you know, view into, into Gene's life and his approach to uh, where he was as a person, as a musician, and in terms of his professional success at that point. Yeah, I agree. It's actually an album that I was expecting not to like because I don't remember particularly liking it when I listened to it the first time when I was a kid and then again in my 20s. But I'm, you know, as a 50-year-old guy who's got his own life to uh, live and sing about, I kind of dig it, actually. I mean, it's, it's definitely an interesting sort of self-portrait of a, of a guy. Yeah, I think it's probably yeah. the most open and honest uh, of the solo records. It definitely reveals a lot of hidden sides to him that uh, hadn't been shown before that. And, I, you know, I, I think he shows maybe not all of the thousand faces that he has, but <laughs> enough of them uh, that you know that obviously based on all the cock rock, Gene Simmons is a guy that likes women and likes to get laid, but that is not by any means all that he is. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thank you for joining us next week. The final Kiss solo album, Peter Chris. Even the ad yes. that you see on YouTube for the old one, I'm, I'm not looking forward to it. Well, <laughs> you know, on YouTube, they play that ad. It's like Peter, Gene, Ace. And they play a little bit of the song or whatever from or like the, the song or whatever. And I was I was watching that out on YouTube and, they you know, they did all the songs I'm like, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. And then the Peter song came around. I was like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. What is <laughs> that? <laughs> yeah. So. It'll be interesting. I don't remember anything about this album. Uh, I'm not sure I even listened to I'm I'm almost positive I didn't own this as a kid and I'm or at least have like a cassette dub copy from somebody in the neighborhood. Um, and I know that I like I said in college I got the four on cassette at a garage sale. I'm not even sure I listened to it. Well, how do you feel about yacht rock? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that what it is? Okay. I don't remember anything about it. I'm kind of excited. Okay. I may, I may like try to try to hold on to that feeling. We'll talk to you next week. All right. Sounds good. All, All right. right man. Take care, guys. Take care, everyone. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.